This is Broadcast, Talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. Hello and welcome to the programme, I'm Jake Cantor. On Talking TV this week, Fast Show writer Charlie Higson gives us a skinny on his BBC One Christmas treat, Professor Brainstorm. We'll also have news on BBC One's search for a Saturday night entertainment hit and kids' TV tax breaks moving a step closer. And finally, we're on the previews trail. Stand by for a taste of BBC Two mockumentary Brian Pern, A Life in Rock, and watch pilot Honey, I Bought the House. That's all coming up on Talking TV from Broadcast. Joining me at Maple Street Studios is Outline Productions Managing Director Laura Mansfield and Broadcast Editor Chris Curtis. Welcome, guys. Morning. 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 You okay? <laughs> yeah, we had our uh, Broadcast Awards shortlist party oh, last funny. night. It's funny, it says that in my script, Chris. Don't, don't, yeah, I'm pre- I'm Scripted pre- small talk. I'm, pre- <laughs> I'm preempting you, Jake. My apologies. <laughs> and yeah, well, it's a stellar shortlist, isn't it? Yeah, it's... Um, Lots of competition, as ever. Lots of happy people this morning, and probably some slightly disappointed ones as well. But, uh, yeah, February the 4th is the uh, the awards at the Grosvenor House. So we've sort of um, made the first step towards that by by publishing uh, who's in the frame for those awards. And Channel 4 leading the way with 25 nominations. Lots of lots of programming nominations for C4. Yeah, that's right. They had a very good uh, Grierson. Um, and they've been doing pretty well generally on the awards front uh, recently. So uh, that continues. Fantastic. How are you, Laura? I'm very perky this morning. We had our own award win yesterday with winning the Garden Guild Awards for our Great British Garden Revival for BBC Two. So we're now officially well, the best gardening programme on television. <laughs> take, take that, Titchmar. Take that. <laughs> uh, and you're also on the campaign trail, aren't you? I am, yeah. Tell I've, us about that. I've put my hat in the ring to be packed chair for the next two-year term. Um, it's going to be a really, really important couple of years ahead. There's charter renewal, there's... Um, Indies under greater threat than ever for um, calls from the terms of trade to be changed. So it's a really, really important time. And as I've sat on PAC Council for the last couple of years, I've discovered how passionately I feel about the indie sector. I've been running my indie for 15 years now and feel like I've seen a fair amount in that time and you know really want to, you know, put my hat in the ring to to help champion the sector. And you're up against Sarah Geeter and, uh, and Kat Lewis. Yeah, I mean, you know, fantastic uh, producers, fantastic women, both of them. Um, it's exciting to see an all-women shortlist. Um, and, you know, while I think that I bring a different kind of experience as a creative, as someone who's founded and run a company and really experienced firsthand those challenges for 15 years, you know, I would never put either of them down. I think they're both extraordinarily talented. And if either one of them was to be Pat Chair... That would be a great thing too. I was speaking to John McVeigh and he was telling me this is the first time that there's been a sort of um, a competitive race to be PAC chair. Certainly, you know, for his time at the organisation, which is 14 years. Um, and that shows how important, as Laura said, the next few years are. And the fact that there's three really strong candidates all keen to take that role on um, speaks well for PAC as an organisation and for the uh, indie sector. Okay, uh, let's move on to our first news item of the week, uh, which is BBC One's hunt for a Saturday night entertainment hit. Uh, Following the failure of Tumble, it has circulated a major commissioning brief calling on key suppliers to pitch at the next Strictly Come Dancing. 
Heart, humour and honesty must be at the core of the successful idea as BBC One controller Charlotte Moore looks to make her mark in a genre where she has not had the best of luck to date. Uh, Chris, this is a pretty big opportunity, a big prize, isn't it? They're uh, dangling a prize, aren't they? That's the interesting thing. Um, As well as the normal, um, slightly airy-fairy language that I (laughs) struggle to to necessarily understand, what's interesting about this document is it sets out the pathway. It gives you the timelines for when they want the submissions in by, when they'll whittle that down, and ultimately, I think it's the week commencing 12th of January, they're either going to take one of these... um, projects straight to series or at least pilot it so that there's a there's a nice prize at the end of it so hopefully that will set the indie sector's creative juices flowing and well, yeah it's it's so difficult isn't it, it you know we I, i've been at broadcast for four and a half years it feels like the industry has been constantly talking about finding an entertainment hit in that time what laura why do you think it is so tough in that genre I think entertainment is the hardest thing. I mean, what you're talking about doing is creating something that's going to appeal to a massively broad mainstream audience, compete against the incumbents, which are fantastically polished now and both really into their stride. So you've got Strictly on BBC One, you've got X Factor on ITV. So coming into that, it's incredibly competitive. And I think if you rewind back to when Strictly started... That was a big risk. It was really surprising. And people thought, uh, what? You know, and it had been years since Come Dancing had been on air and it was hugely unfashionable. So I think the challenge really and what's exciting creatively for producers is to say, come on, let's really throw everything up in the air. Can we come up with something that feels new, feels fresh, feels exciting? And I think that's probably where Tumble fell down, to excuse the pun. Um, is <laughs> Excused. <laughs> it didn't necessarily feel like a turn of the wheel. It didn't really feel like something that was different enough. And I think the audiences want new stuff. I mean, look at how people are coming to Gogglebox. They want something that's fresh. A bit fresh. And, and what do you make of... Uh, commissioning briefs I'm sure everyone is very different but are they useful as a production company the more specific they are the more helpful they are I think creatives do best when given constraints and that sounds like a really weird thing but I think if you're given limits you bounce against them and it forces you to think differently if you're just simply told very broadly we'd like to take a risk or I don't know surprise us it, it, it's not really enough. So the ty- for me, the tighter the brief, the more specific the time frame, the slot, the information, anything that gives you something to kind of rub up against is incredibly helpful as a brief. I do love some of the language in that BBC One brief. You know, more, more Wembley Stadium than Wembley Arena. This is sort of a bit airy-fairy, nebulous yeah. commissioning language, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I think Laura's point is an excellent one. And I think that, Look, it's it's easy to be critical, isn't it? Because um, if 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 it was too prescriptive, we'd be sat here saying, "Well, how how can the indie sector possibly um, uh, come up with something new and innovative when the constraints, when the criteria that the BBC has set are so tight?" So you have to be a, give them their due. But please, if the net, if if what gets commissioned or piloted from this is um, a celebrity elimination format in which a group of celebrities learn a skill they didn't previously had and go on an emotional journey during the process, please, let's just uh, avoid that from the outset. (laughs) Okay, well, that message will move on. Uh, Next up, a big boost for the makers of live-action children's TV programming. Uh, Chancellor George Osmond told a Creative Industries event this week that he is looking very seriously at extending the successful high-end television tax relief scheme. 
Uh, sources have previously told broadcasts that the tax breaks could be included in Osborne's autumn statement next month, uh, meaning shows like Mr Maker could be filmed in the UK for less money. Uh, Laura, this can only be good news, can't it? This is only good news. I mean, Pact has been campaigning for this for three years at least. Um, this is exactly the perfect example of where governments should intervene into the market. You know, unfortunately, the global market for children's television is all about sort of bland animation. And what we want in this country is a healthy, surviving sector um, with original content being produced here. It's really, really tough for children's producers to make ends meet and to put together the packages. So this can only be well and only be a really brilliant shot in the arm. It's still a bit early, isn't it, to assess the success of the uh, initial high-end tax break scheme, but it feels like there is more and more take-up, isn't there? Yeah, I think certainly. I think it's been you know, generally deemed to be a real success in that it stimulated production in all kinds of areas of the UK and Ireland. Um, it's really, really helped. And I think we're only sort of starting to see things coming down the track now. I think there's a real boost to training as well and to a recognition of building up the skill set in the industry. It's presented some challenges as well in that in certain sectors, um, rates are going up because there are so many sort of American companies coming in and doing their productions here. So it is presenting challenges, but I think they're challenges that can be overcome and with training um, they will be overcome. Chris is quite timely given it was the kids BAFTAs this uh, this weekend. Almost yeah. like it was by design. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well um, there was a conspiracy theory wasn't there that when um, Osborne announced the um, high-end tax and the animation tax break that he'd done so purely so he could make a Wallace and Gromit uh, <laughs> gag at the dispatch box. But, um, at the expense of Ed Miliband. At the expense of Ed Miliband, <laughs> indeed. Um, I think that what will be really interesting is what you would hope is that if this tax credit comes through and we think it will that it would kickstart production in live action children's because it wasn't that long ago that for example CITV was commissioning things like My Parents Aliens and My Life as a Pop Act which were you know really high quality live action um, comedy comedy dramas for, for kids um, and it really feels as though outside of the BBC, the commercial sector really isn't in a position at the moment to do that. And you wonder, is this going to be the measure which perhaps ticks them over so that they can, whether it's ITV, whether it's Nickelodeon, it's Disney, get back, you know, get into live action, British made drama, comedy, whatever it might be, scripted content for the uh, kids sector. I mean, you'd hope so, wouldn't you? Because whenever Angela Jane talks about CITV on a public platform, she's always really open about the fact that CITV has no money, effectively, and you've got to come to the table with a project which is well-financed and probably co-produced mm. by I think, you several know, people. It's not, I don't think a tax break is suddenly going to mean that CITV is awash with cash, but, and, and, and this isn't a point necessarily about ITV, I think it's about outside of the BBC, will... Um, some of the commercial sector look at it and think, you know what, there's value to be gained. We can The, the sums now add up for us to make some live-action content. OK. Uh, finally in the news, a commission of the fortnight. Uh, it's ITV confirming the order of new Saturday tea time drama Jekyll and Hyde from ITV Studios. Uh, created by Charlie Higson, the 10-part series is inspired by Robert Louis Stevenson's iconic novel and is crafted very much with the international market in mind. Uh, Chris, this is ITV Studios' uh, sort of global strategy in action, isn't it? This is it, yep. This is the, this is the plan, and it's, it's ITV Studios and ITV Network as well. The whole, I mean, the corporate, the PLC strategy in place, really, which is get 
high quality talent to create IP that, that, that ITV owns as a as a company, get that on air. They'll be hoping it's a big hit, um, does well for them um, uh, in the UK. And then MIPCOM and, 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 and MIP, they'll be pushing it hard, trying to uh, generate some international revenues. The, the combination of a perennial story with Charlie Hickson, with ITV, I mean, it like you say, it's got hit written all over it. Um, but ultimately, nobody ever knows anything. And, you know, you, you think that something's a hit and you never really know until it hits the air and see what see what the viewers Surely say. Surely commissioners would argue differently. <laughs> I don't think they would. I think, you know, if commissioners could guarantee that every single thing they commissioned would be a hit, um, we would never have any failures on air. And I think everybody would line things up to try and get hits but you can never guarantee anything but this does sound brilliant and it, well it feels like itv's due, overdue a sort of drama in this space given that primeval has been off there for quite a while yeah absolutely so i mean the the b the bbc and particularly bbc one's always had a bit more um going on in this sort of sector i mean atlantis at the moment atlantis at the moment they obviously um uh, doctor who's obviously the big thing that they play that they they played it later this year but they generally play it um, sort of around that tea time um, slot um, what have they done they've done Robin Hood in the past they did the Musketeers didn't they so there's a bit more um, history track record for the Beeb to do it and ITV is probably looking at that and thinking that there's so I mean this is a pre-war you know pre-war high-end expensive pre-watershed um, drama and, and let's see how it goes and they're eyeing Beowulf the Iron Beowulf, yeah, Beowulf's not such an obvious um, property to go for in that it's a sort of epic old English poem um, that probably doesn't have quite the same resonance with lots of people as um, Jekyll and Hyde. But yeah, you know, it shows a bit of am- ambition on their part. Uh, you can hear more from Charlie Higgs and later in the show. Uh, but for now, that's your news for this week. Uh, my thanks to Chris and Laura. <laughs> Now then, the Christmas publicity machine is spluttering into full swing and one of the goodies in the BBC stocking this year is comedy drama Professor Brainstorm. BBC One has signed up an all-star cast led by Harry Hill for the adaptation of Norman Hunter's much-loved children's books about a mad inventor. The 60-minute film is made in-house and is penned by Far Show and Young Bond writer Charlie Higson. We caught up with Charlie at the Professor Brainstorm screening last week where he explained how he convinced Harry Hill to take on his first acting role. Uh, so welcome, Charlie. We've just seen some exclusive clips of, uh, of the show. What's it been like showing it to an audience for, a, for the first time? I was very confident with the show, having seen all the, uh, the, the edit of it, and I thought, actually, this is really good. So um, I remember when I first saw the first assemblies, because as we were filming every week, the editor would just cut together what he had. And whenever you see first assemblies, you kind of, you're usually too nervous to actually click on it. You're thinking, oh my God, what's this going to be like? But as soon as I started it, I thought, oh, great. <laughs> They've done a fantastic job. So, you know, I, I was very confident to let people see bits. I mean, they're only little bits because it is unfinished and uh, particularly because there's a lot of CGI to go on it with, uh, with all those sort of mad inventions and things. It's clear from uh, you know the the Q and A we've just uh, we've just heard that both you and Harry have great affection for the books. Um, how did you first uh, become aware of them? And you know, once you realised that this was a viable opportunity, I, I guess you you must have jumped at it. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's really interesting the history of the Professor Brainstorm books. Um, the stories were originally written for BBC Children's Hour and the radio in the early nineteen thirties. 
uh, and they were a big hit. And so Norman Hunter did the first book, The Incredible Adventures of Professor Brainstorm in the early 30s, and then a sequel to that. And then he went off to do other things. He didn't, he didn't think of himself particularly as a writer. He, he, he did all manner of stuff. But then in the late 60s, um, ITV made a TV series of Professor Brainstorm. And I think that must have been when I found out about the character, because I, uh, I read the books avidly when I was a kid, when I was about 10 years old, um, and loved them. And they're really funny and inventive and chaotic. And the, the, the first book has these beautiful Heath Robinson illustrations, which I loved as a kid. And, I, and on the back of that, Norman Hunter came back and wrote a load more books. Um, and so there was a generation of kids who, who, who came to it at that time. Um, and I'd sort of forgotten about them until I, I had kids of my own and I was looking for stuff and I, I found a story in a, in a compilation of, of stories and read it to them and they really laughed and I thought, you know, actually it's amazing that these stories still work now. So when I... And I started talking about them because as, as a children's writer I talk about books a lot. And um, the publishers and the, uh, whatever came to me... In fact, the, I was asked to write a new Professor Brainstorm book. So I, I didn't have time but I'm, I'm just so glad to been given the opportunity to do this as a film because hopefully it'll bring a whole new generation of kids to the books and and because they are still very readable now um they'll stand up very well um and also it was great that the bbc were really behind it because they had the resources to do it properly it's 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 a pretty big budget show um so it mean, meant we could probably build a lot of the machines and the inventions, and then we can add to that and, and build other ones that are entirely kind of computer-generated. You talked about getting Harry on board. Was he always the first choice? He was, actually. Um, and, I, and in fact, the BBC, the BBC said, how about Harry Hill? And I thought, yes, he's bald. Uh, <laughs> but it wasn't just, you know, th- 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 there was a certain feeling of, all right, who's a bald actor who could do this? Uh, but actually, he was a perfect fit for the part. Um, because he he exists in his own anarchic little world, and um, there's there's no malice in what he does. Uh, he can be quite sharp and and having a go at people, but somehow you forgive him for it, and and that works very well for the character Professor Brainstorm, who creates incredible chaos around himself, but is entirely oblivious to it. He's just in his little world, and all he's thinking about is his next invention. So it, it was a great fit, and. Uh, we had some early meetings together and, you know, he, he had certain, you know, he wanted to make sure that this was going to work for him uh, and we needed to make sure that he was going to work for us and, and, and luckily it worked out well on both fronts. <laughs> uh, you mentioned the ambition. Uh, ben Farrell, the executive producer, has also talked up the ambition of the show. What was some of the more challenging elements of the, the production? Well, A, it's a period piece. Um, it's set in a sort of undefined part of the olden days, anywhere between the 30s and the 50s. That's always expensive. You know, if you get extras in, they've got to wear period pieces, period clothing. If you, you know, if you've got the vehicles, you've got to find places in England that you can still shoot as, as, as the olden days. And, and luckily, we, we, the very good location person found couple of two different towns that they used there was a you know it's a big cast of big names um which costs you money uh and also there is this this big element of the of the cgi of the computer generated machines and getting all that to work you know it, this is probably something we couldn't have done 10 years ago certainly not 20 years ago but the technology now is so advanced and is really you know it has got cheaper but it is still an expensive 
process. And the actual contraptions that Professor Brainstorm creates, um, what was it like making those? Well, the great thing was that the, the designer said, look, let's make as much as we can. And he had a real feel for uh, of what makes those inventions fun. It's the, little, it's the weird bits and pieces you bolt onto them that, that you, know, you wouldn't expect. And, and, you know, there's machines made out of sewing machines and typewriters and garden implements and kitchen implements. And then once he started showing his designs and some of his early... Um, well, they weren't models, they were actually machines. And I just thought, oh, you know, they're going to look so beautiful. Uh, and, it, and it's great that it's not all computer-generated. It's not a big kind of Hollywood thing. That these are actual things that you can feel and touch and, and play with, which Harry loved because he loves props, he loves working with bits and pieces and odd contraptions that sometimes work and sometimes don't, but have that kind of DIY feel about them. Uh, and so it was great that he could actually interact with, with the machines that we, that, that we had made. And you're, you're in the show, you play with the mayor of, uh, of the town. Uh, was that always the intention? And I, I had not originally intended to be in the show because I, uh, I'm really busy on three other fairly big projects at the moment. And I said, look, I would love to be in this, but I, I, don't, uh, I don't have the time. Uh, so sadly, I, I, I passed these parts on. But then um, Brian Blessed was lined up to play the mayor of Pagwell. Um, uh, but he had an eye infection and, and had to pull out. So at the last minute, we had a read-through, and I said, well, I'll read for the mayor and afterwards they said well that was fine well, you know, why don't you do the part it would be great and I thought it was only two days filming so I thought well if it's two days over a weekend that's fine so I said yeah alright yeah and then I found out it was five days filming uh, so that was a whole week gone um, and I had to I had to pretend to the other productions I was working on that I was off doing important work. But then when I started tweeting pictures of myself in a giant beard <laughs> and an outrageous mayor's costume, I think they realised I was up to something. They cottoned on. Yes, but no, it was such fun. And I'm so glad that it worked out that because um, we had this one big scene where um, most of the characters are in it. Uh, and it was just a joy to work with David Mitchell and Ben Miller and Adrian Scarborough and Harry Hill and uh, Simon Day to have us all in this one big scene together. And there's 13 books, am I right in saying that? There could well be. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What I'm trying to get, I guess, is uh, there's scope to do more. Yes, there are, there are tons of stories. But it, the, the books are they're collections of short stories. They're, they're not novels. So in each book, there's a huge amount of amazing invention and, and creativity. Uh, for this film, I've used four bits from four of the stories in, in the first book, The Incredible Inventors of Professor Brainstorm. So there is, there is tons of stuff. And in fact, there, there are two or three stories from that book which I'd wanted to work into this uh, script. Um, so if the BBC did want another one, th- yeah, there, there is tons of great stuff. Uh, time now for some previews, and I'm delighted to welcome back Laura Mansfield and Chris Curtis. Uh, we will start with Honey, I Bought the House, an Objective and Crook Productions pilot for UK TV's Formats Lab initiative. The show provides a couple with a £15,000 deposit to get them on the property ladder, but in a don't-tell-the-bride-style twist, they are then separated and one is given three weeks to buy a house or the couple lose the money. Here's a taste of the first episode where Chris is watching from behind the scenes as his girlfriend Charlie and her mum Sandra are looking around one of three houses he's been thinking about buying. This looks nice. <laughs> oh, looks nice, oh, does it? Looks a bit more me, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it does. Oh, I think I bought this one. 
I think I might like it. <laughs> I think you oh. might like it. <laughs> no. It feels homely already. Oh. I think oh, well, I think I'm going to like it. Yeah, but think about size. Think about the size of the place. Oh, I do really like it. She likes it. Plenty of room for a table. No. <laughs> I like the units. Where is it? It's in Dunmo, think. You're in Dunmo. Got space. Yeah, but look at the lounge area, it's small. It's small lounge area. It's all modern, it's all new. Oh, If Charlie and Chris fail to see eye to eye about his final choice, their dream of getting on the property ladder is about as remote as, well, the village of Little Dunmo. I think you've got to consider the location where this is, how far it is from your work and Chris's work. Yes, Sandra. Nice big bathroom. Lovely. Natural light. Window, excellent. That's a nice bathroom, I like that bathroom. I think it's got everything we both want and need. If Chris has not chosen this one, yeah. we want to know why. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in so much shit. Uh, what, what did you make of this, Chris? It, it's a fairly well-trodden path in the sense that it, it so, owes so much to Don't Tell the Bride. Um, and like that show, it's sort of based on this vaguely jocular idea of male incompetence, which I sort of uh, can just about cope with. It has some funny moments and the final section that we heard there where the young lady is going around looking at these three shortlisted properties and trying to work out which one she thinks her uh, partner has um, made an offer on um, uh, while the guy who's done the, the bidding watches on um, behind the scenes. Uh, that's That's funny. You know, there are some funny moments there, and as ever, it's the disparity between the two different points of view. But um, it took a little while to get going, and um, that endless sort of recap thing before and after the commercial breaks, where they, they throw forward, and it just... I it's mean, more pronounced when there aren't actual advert breaks. Uh, maybe when you're it, previews, may, maybe it is, maybe it is, but I, that, I found that very frustrating. So lots to like there, but um, a fairly well-trodden path, I'd say. That's the best bit of the show, isn't it, Laura, that? To, for me, it was anyway when they when they're viewing the properties. Um, I don't know. I mean, I I went into the show sort of expecting to not like it because I thought, well, you know, it's don't tell the bride for property hunting. But actually, I found myself really charmed by it, and I I actually found the beginning of the show where you're sort of setting up the concept and imagining, oh my god, what would it be like if you actually had to buy a house totally without your partner, with no help at all, and reveal it, done, without any consultation. And it was quite delicious. And sort of looking at setting up that sort of anticipation at the beginning, I thought was, you know, was really entertaining. Um, I thought that it is well-trodden territory, but no-one's done it for house buying before, so why not? I, you know, it'll be really interesting to see how it does. I mean, I think that the Formats Lab initiative is a very clever idea um, on the part of Watch and UK TV, you know, and, you know, for that channel, being able to sort of say, right, we're going to play, we're going to have four, five new formats, and... We're going to open up opportunities for five indies to come up with different ideas, see how they get on. You know, good on them. I think the challenging thing is to get an audience with one episode of something without a lot of marketing. That then becomes tough. Uh, it would be interesting to see what they consider a success. Uh, because, it, as Laura says, it's going to be quite difficult to attract a big audience in isolation. It won't it? just be ratings. They won't measure it purely on rating success, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. They're pretty sophisticated there. They'll have different measures, um, you know, some sort of 
group testing or AR, AI or something like that. The the thing uh, the, it reminded me a bit of a of a, you know, a Kirsty and Phil show where you've got a couple and they're both on screen and the bloke wants one thing and the woman wants another thing. And they go around and Kirsty and Phil sort of throw their hands up in the air and say, "Oh, how frustrating! These two are never going to agree." It was kind of that, but with the the, the couple separated. Um, so I kind of felt like I'd been there before a, a little bit. Um, the other thing that occurs to me is when you, when they do Don't Tell the Bride on BBC Three, that's obviously a youth-skewing channel with young couples. What wasn't clear to me on this is whether if you return, you know, as a returnable format, the casting would be quite interesting. And whether if you didn't have a young couple, a first-time buyer, whether that would work, I presume they will do young first-time buyers over and over again. Um, and that, you know, I think that would work well. But for Watch... Um, which is a more mainstream entertainment channel, broader audience. I didn't know whether that would um, would jar slightly. To me, it was sort of lacking some of the traditions that a wedding brings, uh, because there's lots of little format points that you see in Don't Tell the Bride. Obviously, you know, you know they they have the stag do and the hen do, and you know all the various things. The that dress, go, the yeah, venue, exactly. the food. Yeah, you just don't have that with house buying, do you? And you're sort the fitted of wardrobes yeah, aren't fitted quite wardrobe. as exciting. You're looking around. You're sort of walking around looking at inanimate objects, which is a bit of a problem, I think, in the middle section of the show for mm. me. I don't know if you agree, Laura. Yeah, no, I think you're already you're 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 in a sort of smaller territory, and because you're for its first time buyers, the delicious bit about it is they have no clue um, and they're very raw and they're very emotional because they've never never done this before and I think that's what's really lovely but because they're first time buyers there's no house porn it's little tiny yeah. boxy rooms very bog standard and one of the fun things about a property format is having a bit of house porn so <laughs> if they were going to kind of develop this into a series you would need I think to see a mixture of houses and have people at a different end of the scale just finally, though, the casting was excellent. They were a very likeable, warm, very. warm couple. And even when they were disagreeing or arguing and you thought, oh, there's... It was never really felt like real tension. It felt like a really good couple, so the casting was excellent. Yeah, and they had to spend... They genuinely spent three weeks apart, didn't they? And you could see that on screen that it yeah. was quite testing for both of them. They were in love, I thought. I found it quite warming. <laughs> Chris, you're getting soft in your old age. <laughs> Honey, I bought the house as on the 2nd of December at 8pm. Uh, finally, this episode, we head over to BBC Two for comedy Brian Pern, A Life in Rock. Uh, the six-part mockumentary is a follow-up to the first series, which originally aired on BBC Four and centres on the life of ageing rocker Brian Pern, played by Simon Day. What have you done? Please tell me. It doesn't matter how weird I can take it. Nuns, newts, flatulence, biscuits, I don't care what it is, just tell me. Brian Cornelius Pern? Yes. Is this about the Poltex EP I released with the Levelers in 1990? I realised I made some damning comments about the constabulary. No, it's much more serious than that, sir. You are suspected of harbouring a known criminal and felon known as Ali Quack. What? Jesus Christ. Is that it? You're arresting him for that? What do you mean, is that it? It's a very serious crime, sir. You're making a terrible mistake. Ali Quack is one of the greatest musicians in the world. Not according to the Foreign Office, sir. He's a convicted kidnapper, forger and human trafficker. This is one of your peasant bloody flute players, isn't it? Terrible news. What is going to happen to me? Nothing. They're letting you go. You come to my client's home and arrest him with some spurious guff about a fucking Iranian camel rustler. Where's the proof? Hang on a minute. Who are you? I'm your worst fucking nightmare, mate. Where's the proof? Oh, you got payments from his account. Yes, from a session recording, you plump. 
You can't vet every musician who records at his studio. It's like arresting Fred West's landlord, for fuck's sake. I'll tell you what's going to happen. You're going to release him now, and you're going to make a full apology on the news tonight, or I'm on the phone to Theresa May, and you're directing Traffic in Norwich on Monday morning. Have you got that? Yeah, right. Yeah, right. So, was it funny? It wasn't my thing, I think I would say. I sort of felt like it really worked as a concept for BBC Four in that, you know, BBC Four is a place where you have rock documentary, genuine rock documentaries and stuff about the history of music and there's a particular sort of slightly older audience who are kind of really catered for by programmes about music and therefore a comedy, a mockumentary in that context feels really smart and really clever. For me, translating that out into BBC Two into a much more mixed environment I think is going to be a lot more challenging because when you're dealing with then a more general viewer frankly like me um, you're going to be comparing it to Spinal Tap and you're not in that sort of particular refined world so I don't know for me it, it, didn't, it didn't quite hit It's got a properly, properly starry cast though, uh, hasn't it? So that is I think what the BBC Two move I mean so now Cathy Burke's in it and um, you know Nigel Havers and, and the, the the quality of the cast is, is uh, very very high I, I absolutely agree with Laura in that what this it, this is a, a sort of satire on I don't know 70s prog rock and the reality is not that many people in the UK are particularly bothered about 70s prog rock Certainly no one who is, uh, you know, younger than us around this table is particularly bothered about um, uh, prog rock. And so it's kind of trying to skewer the pomposity of that period, but it feels very retrospective and, and looking back. There are some really funny moments and lots of celebs are prepared to send themselves up in it, which is fun. Martin Freeman was in it and very, very funny. There was a split second of um, Fern Cotton um, where she um, looked like they'd, they'd aged her about, I don't know, 25 years. I mean, there were The best bit was right at the start when Alan Yentov was introducing it and they flashed up his name as, uh, Melvin, as Bragg. Melvin Bragg. <laughs> there, was lots of, there were lots of nice moments in it, but uh, I, I, I couldn't agree more with Laura in that when it, sit, when it was sitting on BBC Four, the people going to BBC Four were absolutely in its target audience. Now it's on BBC Two. It's really hard to think who, uh, who's going to watch this. The BBC loves it, though, I think, from from what I can gather. They're, they're very proud of it. Uh, and they should... Well, I'm not saying it isn't, yeah. a, it isn't a, a, a funny show. Um, there were lots of um, sort of nice moments. I did feel a bit like, you know, when you watch Simon Day, it feels a bit like I was watching a, a, a far show sketch that had been um, dragged down. How many parts did you say this was? Six. Six parts. That sort of makes me a bit nervous about whether it can, can sustain it over that period. I, I chuckled my way through. I enjoyed it. I think some of the prog rock sort of references were probably lost on me. Um, and I spent more time um, cameo spotting. Yeah. Do you think you'll be coming back, Laura? I en- really enjoyed the performances. And I think, like Chris says, the, the cameos are brilliant. And for me, the manager's role was mm. just wonderful. And he was... Every time he came back on screen, for me, he sort of lit the thing up and I really, really enjoyed that part of it. But I I just don't think that a 40-something woman is the target audience for this show. Scott, you can see Shane Allen's influence here, I think, personally. It's quirky. It's different. I mean, it sounds like we're being a bit a bit down on this. Uh, I agree with Laura again that the the manager. I'd love to see more of the manager. It kind of made me think that I'd like to see a, a mockumentary about some um, TV talent agents. Maybe there's a few <laughs> a few candidates I can think of that might. Do make you think that for... would work, Laura? 
<laughs> well, every talent agent I know is a remarkable and unique character. So if you could, if you could get access, it would be a wonderful, wonderful mockumentary and I suspect that people would be up for sending themselves up because everyone can see the funny side in Very what they carefully do. chosen words I think, I enjoyed that <laughs> Brian Pern, A Life of Rock debuts on the 9th of December on BBC Two and like a group of ageing rockers we've played our final tune for this episode thanks to my guests, uh, Laura Mansfield Chris Curtis and of course Charlie Higson Hope you've enjoyed the show, we'll be back in a couple of weeks for a Christmas special but until then, I've been Jake Cantor and the producer was Peter Price, goodbye for now You've been listening to Broadcast, talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. 